In this episode of Full Stack Radio, I talked to Jeffrey Way about building the new Laracasts.com with Tailwind CSS. This is Full Stack Radio, episode 111. Hey everyone, welcome to the Full Stack Radio podcast. I'm your host, Adam Wathen, as usual, and today I'm here with my good friend, Jeffrey Way. How's it going, Jeffrey? Good. Thanks for having me back. So uh, the reason I wanted to have you on the show today is, uh, I don't know when it was, maybe towards the end of last year, November, something like that, um, you put out a new kind of big redesign of the Laracasts website, and not even just like a redesign, basically a whole front-end rebuild as far as... I understand. And I think it's one of the bigger kind of fancier projects out there that's built with a uh, Tailwind CSS. So I thought it'd be cool to talk about your experience doing that and sort of the decision-making process that led to it. Maybe some of the pitfalls you've run into with previous approaches you've used to, you know, kind of architect things with CSS and, and kind of learn about what that, that process was like. So I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, let's do it. So I guess, um, first of all, what has been your approach like historically to CSS in general and just kind of implementing a design that a designer's handed off to you? Okay. Uh, historically, probably the, the same path that everyone took. Uh, so in the past, I would have, this would be, I don't know, 2007, something right around there. So in the past, you have that PSD, right? And then you go and you chop up all of the images and then you have a folder full of images and then one by one you go and you construct the HTML and the CSS. And what ends up happening, everyone does this, I think, especially back then. The CSS basically duplicates the structure of the HTML, right? So you may have like an ID, because back then you only used IDs. <laughs> uh, you'd have an ID and then you'd say like post H1 or post P or post UL or post arrow UL, arrow LI, arrow uh, A. And so your CSS completely duplicates um, your HTML structure. And my understanding was this was a best practice. Uh, it turns out that's not even close to a best practice, but but I think that's how most people uh, learned it back in the day. So it's been kind of fun to see over the last five years, everyone kind of zeroing in on how to write good CSS. Mm -hmm. It's almost like, you know, where you're going back and forth, like, okay, this sucks. So I'm going to switch over here. We're going to try out maybe this other approach where the CSS doesn't duplicate the HTML. And then you're using classes a little more than IDs. So that way you can reuse some styling. And then it's like, okay, well, that kind of sucks too. Maybe we'll try this BIM syntax. That's a little better. I get rid of some of the specificity issues I ran into but that kind of sucks to write. And then you kind of slowly gravitate towards uh, what, in my opinion, what what most people will ultimately gravitate towards is is this utility approach. Uh, So that's what I did with Laracasts. Is that kind of the path you followed? Yeah, I think so. I think um, you nailed it with the the mirroring, the HTML sort of thing. I think everyone Everyone at, at the beginning, they sort of think of HTML as this like altar to be worshipped that must be as pure as possible and treated with as much respect as possible but the css is just like this whipping boy where it's like do whatever it takes uh to make the html look the way you want regardless of you know 
the monstrosity that you create in that .css file. Who cares about the CSS file? The, H- the HTML is the file that we care about keeping organized or tidy. It, it is funny, and I don't know where it comes from. Why a, a disproportion and an amount of purity is assigned to the HTML versus the CSS. And it is weird. It becomes like a religious thing. Uh, and you, you see it when any time a person encounters... Uh, like a utility-driven HTML file for the first time, their first instinct is complete disgust. Absolutely. Mine was too. Uh, like <laughs> the, the I, And I even apologized to the creator of um, Techions, but the first time I saw it, my, my instinct was, what the hell is this? <laughs> and it's, it's so arrogant because they spend so much time thinking about it, but um, I, I feel better knowing I'm not the only one who had that, that initial um, response. But it does take a little while. You have to get through the disgust phase. Because when you think about it, we were all basically indoctrinated into the old way, the old Mm -hmm. content semantics way of um, writing HTML and and CSS classes, basically from the very beginning of our career. So to get to a point where somebody says, no, all of those uh, best practices you learned maybe not best practices anymore. Uh, I think your 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 initial instinct is to protect that initial viewpoint. Nope, nope, that's the right way. This can't possibly uh, be a better approach. It, it violates literally every single thing about writing <laughs> semantic HTML I've ever learned. And yeah. every HTML and CSS book I've ever read. Uh, so yeah, it, it takes a while. You got to give yeah. it five minutes. I, I'm a big fan of the uh, the phrase "give it five minutes." Give it at least five minutes before you tweet about it. Yeah, it it's probably the the one thing that I've the one like I don't know what you want to call it like coding practice or whatever the that I've encountered where you have the most extreme sort of emotions about it from when you see it and haven't tried it to when like you've tried it a bunch like nothing else have i ever gone from such an extreme hatred to such an extreme oh my god i can't believe how much easier my life is now that i've actually tried it you know what i, mean? I know it, it, it is funny you switch over pretty quick so i think with, with utility success people follow the first step is is disgust and the second step is like you read some tutorials or you watch a video tutorial uh, and you think, all right, I'll give it a try, but I'm not going to like it. And then once you do it, you're like, oh, my God, this is so much better. <laughs> and it, it's genuinely so much more enjoyable. Like we underestimate how important it is to have enjoyable uh, or, or for it to be an enjoyable process to write CSS. And it is not enjoyable when every time you need to add margin or padding, your first step is what am I going to name this list item? Or yeah. what am I going to name this div? I don't know what to name it. And it, it gets into the flow. It, it totally destroys your flow uh, when you have to take a minute and think, all right, what does this represent? I have no clue. Especially at that point, you don't even really know what you're building yet. Like you're kind of zeroing in on the design. Um, so yeah, it, it's tough to take that break and start thinking about naming. And the first name you think of is not going to be the right one almost ever. Uh, so it's nice to get into a flow where you're not thinking about naming it. You're not abstracting some component. Some some component. You're just thinking, okay, I need margin. So my four done. Yeah, and you get into a much better flow that way. Yeah, it's much more like the flow that you have just trying to style something in dev tools or something where it's just like tinkering yes. trying to get it to look the way that you want. Where you're not really worried about the abstraction or anything. You're just trying to get it to where you want it to be, and then 
you know, historically, that's when you have to think of a name and try and copy those styles over to a style sheet. But with this approach, you just you may not even ever get to that phase. And I think it's really liberating to um, let yourself not feel like obligated to have to name every single thing, because I think in practice, it ends up being that a lot of the naming that you assign to things ends up being doing more harm than good because it creates a situation where every time you need to style something new you need to write more css so anytime you add new content to a site that means more content in your css and that file just grows and grows and grows and it's it's so easy to get to a point where the only thing you feel comfortable doing is like carving out a new corner in the css with like a new name and just trying to give yourself this space where nothing you write here could possibly screw up anything else because I've come up with all new names for this. Yes. Whereas all the changes you make in your HTML are all totally isolated, right? If you just remove a class from a div, the only thing it's going to affect is that HTML. Whereas if you find some class that you think is only being used in these three places and decide, oh, I'd like to kind of change the justify content property on this for one reason or another but then there's three other places you didn't know about that we're relying on it that now look totally broken it's it's just like a really stressful experience and you don't i think you underappreciate like how much sort of anxiety is just kind of cranking in the back of your head when you're trying to work that way exactly you know everyone says naming is one of the hardest things in in web development so it's like well let's just take the naming out of it we don't need to worry about it right now you mentioned using uh, Chrome DevTools. That's a core part of my workflow now. And what's nice is, uh, let's say I'm trying to style a card or something like that. I'll have it open in Chrome. I open Chrome DevTools. Uh, there's a little button in Chrome DevTools to just add a class directly to uh, to an element. And so I'll just start doing, you know, MY2, PX4, text red, whatever. And then once I get it the way I want, I just copy those classes, switch over to the HTML, paste it in. I'm done. There's there's no there's no point where it's like okay, let's grab all the CSS and what 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 uh, SAS partial should I put this in? I don't have one yet. All right, what is this thing? I guess it's a card. I need to create a card SAS file. Let's create that. I need to import that into my app.sass file. Let's paste it in there, and then I need to compile it down. It's like oh my god, the number of steps you take for no reason at all other than this is the correct way to do it. And so much of this stuff breaks down to that. It's the correct way to do it. It's the semantics. People use semantics to control you, uh, <laughs> and I hate it. Don't let semantics be a controlling thing because it's not. And, and once you learn about it more, you realize it doesn't even mean anything too much in, in this regard. Uh, and then half the time when people use the word, they don't even really know what it means. They just know... You know, the, the, the class you use should represent the content. Uh, and you'll even see that like in HTML spec. And nobody thinks to ask, why is that? Why is that the case? Why should the, the class represent the content rather than the, uh, the structure of it? Why is one better than the other? Uh, most people don't think to ask that. I didn't. Um, because, you know, it's like if it's in the spec, then obviously they have thought it through. And a lot of times these, thing, these things take many, many years to, to form. So I think we're just now getting to the point where people appreciate how useful uh, a utility-driven approach can be. Yeah, definitely controversial. Um, so I think maybe what would be interesting to talk about is sort of what your workflow was like building the Laracast site. And I think about what a lot of people would be interested in is learning about like 
at what points did you create abstractions around things? When did you use like features like apply in Tailwind, for example? What sort of components did you sort of create abstractions for using like either blade partials or view components instead of making them with CSS? And what was your mm. thought process behind stuff like that? So maybe the best place to start is just like, if you remember, what was it like just at the very beginning of the process, especially when it comes to things like, you know, did you take the designs from your designer and try and extract like a nicely organized color palette in advance? Or did you sort of start with what Tailwind gave you and tweaked as you went? Or do you have okay. any regrets about what you did or would you do anything differently in that regard? So what was sort of the initial project setup experience like? Okay, sure. Many regrets. I, I don't think I've ever worked on anything where I didn't end up with tons of regrets. But, um, okay, Let's go back to the beginning. So I started working on a redesign of Laracast in 2018. Uh, it took about six months total from beginning to end. So the beginning would be working with uh, my UI, my UX designer, his name's Adrian, kind of figuring out what we wanted it to look like. Uh, that's the beginning. The end is deploying it, which I think we did in November, right around there. So it's it's tough because when you are when you're redoing a front end of a site, it's a very different thing from starting a project entirely from scratch. Uh, you're dealing with, in my case, years of small forms of of technical debt or of decisions that I'd made in 2013 that are still being reflected in 2018. This is a hard thing about a long running uh, a long running application. You can you can almost look through it and see all the different things you toyed around with. So I had sections of the site where you could see like, oh, I was doing the BIM syntax there because everything conforms to that. But then this newer area of the code base, I abandoned that because I decided it wasn't useful. But this part, like you don't always go and clean up after yourself. Uh, you'd like to think you do, but it, the reality is with certain projects, if it's still working, you'll deal with it when you have to return to it. But until then, it's kind of best just leave it as it is um, because you have many other things to work on. So I started by, I had a couple choices. One would be to strip the front end completely and start from scratch, which was unbelievably intimidating to do. So I didn't <laughs> do it. Like, have you ever done that where you're like, all right, I'm going to redo the CSS. You rip out the, um, the CSS link entirely. You reload the page and all you see is a white browser with text and it's beyond intimidating. Yeah. I have it every single time where I think, oh, gosh, where am I going to start? I have no clue where to start. Uh, and usually it's not that bad. You know, you start with the header, you do it piece by piece, and it ends up being a lot easier. But that initial refresh where you see nothing but text is is pretty daunting. So what I decided instead of doing that was I, I kind of chickened out and I, I refactored from the, uh, I was using the Bulma framework before, which, which I still like, but I, I refactored one component at a time. So there are lots of situations like um, in Bulma, you have a level component, which is kind of like set the set the container to Flexbox. And then if you want, you know, if there's two children in the div, you want one to the left and one to the right. Well, that's really easy. You know, set it to Flexbox yeah. and then, then and then do justify between. Mm -hmm. So there was lots of situations where I would change that over and then I could remove that portion of Bulma once I no longer referenced it. I'm not so sure if that was this. Go ahead. So the way that you had that set up, you had like Bulma pulled in, sort of like cloned into your project, like copy and pasted so that you could actually 
modify their CSS rather than having it pulled in as a dependency? Oh yeah, good question. So with Bulma, you can either pull it in you know, through a CDN, uh, the uh-huh. way you would traditionally do, or you can pull in all of the assets. So they were stored in my my assets directory. So you owned so them, I basically. Could, yeah. Exactly. So I could see every single component. It's, it's actually a much better way to learn uh, versus pulling in a CDN, because you can see exactly how he structured everything and organized things, which was very useful. So one by one, I just removed every uh, dependency I had on Bulma. So what this meant, though, is even to this day, I still rely on a little bit. I'm trying to get rid of it, but it ends up being a lot harder than you'd think. Um, but that meant I had Bulma and Tailwind running at the same time. And because Bulma does have some utility helpers, that meant with Tailwind I had to use a prefix for all the classes. Yeah. So I just went with the default tw dash. And it's so funny, like whenever I work on a project where I don't have to do that anymore, you would not believe how nice it is to just say text red instead of TW text red. (laughs) Uh, It's really funny. It's such a small, insignificant thing, but it shows you how important it is to stress the small stuff because just me not having to type those extra three letters genuinely makes me happy when I'm working on other projects. but it's nice that I can have that because that way um, the Tailwind utilities I'm using don't interfere with the Bulma stuff as yeah. I was switching over. But yeah, I mean, now that I think of it, I probably should have ripped Bulma out entirely. Again, it's just it's such an intimidating process. Mm-hmm. So I decided to take it in uh, in bits and pieces. But yeah, it was it was a six month process, little by little, as I worked with with Adrian to kind of figure out how we were going to switch over. So um, I'm happy to have it done. Every time I finish a big project, uh, I, I think I'm never doing that again. Because you, you forget how much work it actually is. And Laracast is not a massive site. Uh, but when you think like there's there's a reporting layer, there's a dashboard, there's, you know, there's the content area, there's the CMS, all of those have to be restyled. So it ends up being a, a really long process of every single week just setting a, a checklist of things like convert this over, convert this over, convert this over. So uh, yeah, it's a long process. Yeah. So at the same time, right, you're you're doing this refactoring, just trying to sort of basically switch CSS frameworks with what's there, but you're also implementing like a new design at the same time, right? So you're not mm-hmm. 100% just basically refactoring trying to do like the old switcheroo without things actually changing and the new design is actually quite a bit different from the old one um Mm -hmm. so for things like uh the color palette did adrian prepare like a really well-organized color palette for you or did you sort of pull it piecemeal in hindsight what i should have done is he did have a color palette and i should have immediately set those colors in my tailwind configuration file I'm lazy and I didn't do it. <laughs> so I had to do it piece by piece. And I would very much recommend not doing this because if you have, you need to know what, uh, for example, your your uh, your green color is. Mm-hmm. And if you don't do that ahead of time, who knows if the current shade of green you're doing when you apply a class of text green is the actual base green or it's the lighter shade of green or yeah. the darker shade of green. So there are many situations where it's like I had to go back and say, okay, well, that actually wasn't the... The default green, I wanted the base green that was actually the darker. So that was a mistake on my part. I, I would recommend figuring that stuff out first. W- what do you do on your own projects? I mean, this is a pain point, I think, um, for Tailwind in general, which is why I was interested to hear what your um, experience was like, because I think it's 
there's two sorts of ways that I kind of see people using Tailwind. There's you get a design kind of fully baked, handed to you, and you want to implement it with Tailwind. In that case, I think it's a lot easier to be able to spend the time to sort of pour over it a bit, build the color palette, translate that over to your Tailwind config, and then build the site accordingly. And that's how you avoid like the crappy situations where you get into where you've already used green and green light and then you find, oh crap, there's this green that's in between green and green light. Now okay, I'm going to yes. rename all these I, other... We did run into that. That that was very much a thing where I would think he would have his palette set up. So I would have like, okay, red, dark red, uh, red, darkest red. And then you're right, there would be something in between. And my developer brain would be like, no, this this can't be. It has to be one <laughs> or the other. And he would tell me, like, that's the wrong shade of red or gray. It's always gray. It's the wrong shade of gray. <laughs> and I was like, well, sorry, it doesn't fit into one of these six options you gave me. So not my problem. You need to pick which gray it is. And he'd go, um, no, it's nope, not the right we shade. We have seven grays now, Jeffrey. <laughs> right. So, so this is something I, I think I did see you tweet about this a, a week or so ago. This is a pain point. It's not a big deal, but you do you do end up in that situation where what is the middle ground between red, uh, red, dark, red, darker, mm -hmm. red, darkest? Like I what if I need six shades in between there? You know, yeah. I, I don't have that ability. I don't have the language yeah. uh, to to fill that in. So I'm not sure what you're thinking to fix that if you just take a, a number a number system i think that's what tachyons uses i'm not sure yet yeah, i think tachyons uses um for colors i think if i'm not mistaken i think they just have arbitrary names for tons of different colors um but what we're doing for the tailwind 1.0 which is going to be out really really soon like there's already beta versions out right now is we've switched to a numeric scale that just uses the same names as material design so at least we're not like inventing a new scale we're still just take you know, using some existing precedent. So it's basically the same as a font weight scale now. So it's like 100, 200, 300, 400, up to 900, where 100 is sort of like the lightest and 900 is the darkest. So there's, it's not, it's not perfect in terms of like, it's not super intuitive that 100 is light and 900 is dark, but at least if you can sort of make the connection of font weight, it's easier to figure out which end yeah, of the I mean, scale is Yeah, I mean, I think my what. instinct would be 900 is darker. Yeah, I originally I was thinking just doing one to nine, but then I, in my head, I was like, I have no idea which one's light and which one's dark because I think about color in terms of like HSL a lot where, okay, the higher the lightness is, the closer it is to white and the lower it is, the closer it is yeah. to dark. So it's really easy to make a, to justify either way. So I think using the 100 system, which just uses just what material design does where it's lighter at the bottom and darker at the top and matching to font weight made it a little bit um, less arbitrary. So we're using that system now, and um, the nice thing about it is if you ever really, really needed to put something in the middle, you can. So if you yeah. need something between 500 and 600, you can add 550. Um, right. Now that might not that might feel like technical debt still. You know what I mean? It might kind of feel like uh, I think I must, I must have got this wrong. But the other element is like it, by having nine colors now from 100 to 900 instead of seven, which is what we were limited to by using sort of the named scale. Um, I think it should be a little less likely that you need to add a color because now there's nine right. to choose from. Whereas with seven, we had to have some pretty extreme jumps between them sometimes, which meant you had to put more work into getting it right up front. So what that kind of leads me to is um, what I was kind of talking about before where there's 
sort of two ways I see people use it, which is the way where you get a design handed to you and then you can sort of port over all the design decisions into your config file or um, the way most people who aren't designers use it where they're just starting with the defaults and then tweaking them a little bit as they go and uh, using that as sort of like a base design system to implement something. And I think by having nine colors, it makes that workflow a lot easier too because you're just much more likely to have enough colors to start Mm -hmm. with. So even if you only end up using five of those nine and you try to restrict yourself to just those five, at least you were able to pick those from a a set of nine instead of having to pick them all from the color picker yourself, right? Right. Um, So one of the things we're planning to do for the next release of Tailwind, which might not be all out at the same time, but um, Steve is actually working on a ton of like alternate color palettes. So we ship with like nine or 10 kind of base colors out of the box but if you don't like our blue and you want like a slightly navier blue or a slightly lighter blue steve's gonna put together like a big package somewhere that has those same well-balanced nine shades but a slightly lighter blue or slightly bluer green or like a slightly brighter pink you know what i mean so that you can go and pick the it's it's almost like going to a paint store and like picking up like the swatches you know what i mean where all the different options are there for you and you don't have to you know just start with one color and then figure out those nine shades yourself um yeah. so hopefully just give people a bit of a more curated menu to choose from that'll hopefully still have enough options to give you everything you need but um you know not be yeah not force you to sort of have to go and do everything yourself that's kind of nine my should be solution enough in the so far to that problem cases. but yeah yeah nine should be enough uh, that that was one thing i really appreciate with with tailwind is it forces um what would be the word it, it forces consistency so it, it forces me to stay within this boundary so if i do have five different color choices that have been selected for me those are my choices. So it's almost like I have um, like a little tool set I can pull from where in the past, like with old versions of Laracas, it would be more things like when you when you hover over this link, it should be a darker shade of blue. I don't know what that shade is. Just darken it by 5% or yeah, darken it by yeah. 10%. And so, and I think you originally showed me this like a year ago, there, there's some kind of service where you can measure all the different colors uh, that have been defined for your site. I did mine. It's like 500 or something. It's insane. <laughs> and it's all because you're you're thinking you're being a good developer by sticking with your same base color and then just tweaking it by yeah. making it 10% darker or 10% lighter. And you think you're being a good developer. But then what you realize is uh, the amount that you're darkening that link or whatever it is, 10%, it's not codified anywhere so somewhere else it might be 20 percent because you forgot over here you did it 10 percent six months ago Mm -hmm. so over here when you do it again you darken it by five percent and it's a different shade of the blue so you you multiply that by however many years you're working on a site and suddenly you have 400 different colors and 60 different versions of of blue or brown and then you feel like you're such a horrible person when you thought you were doing when you when you thought you were being a, a smart developer, it, it turned out uh, not quite so much. So I love with with Tailwind. I just have my my tool set. I have my six colors, and that's it. There, there's no scenario where suddenly I have ten new shades of gray I didn't know about the day before. Yeah. You know, it's like I have my tool set. Those are the ones I'm working with. Uh, yeah, which I which I quite appreciate as yeah. a developer. Yeah, I love it because it it, int- it introduces a bit of friction between 
adding a new value, right? So if you do really need to add a new value, of course you can do it, but it kind of takes you out of your normal workflow and makes you like second guess, like, do I really need to do this? Like normally I'm not mm-hmm. jumping to a CSS file, but right now I am. So, you know, that's like triggering my spidey senses a little bit or whatever. And makes right, you kind of right. think so about So I would have decisions. many times when I would go back to my UI guy and I'd be like, is this supposed to be that shade? And many times, um, he would say yes, but in, in many other times he would say, oh, no, it can be this shade yeah. if it was just a slightly different tweak. Uh, so I, I very much appreciated that. Yeah, yeah. Sure. I think I think that's another in- thing for people to keep in mind with the workflow in general is um, a lot of the time people just assume that every single piece of a design is like meticulously crafted to be exactly the way the designer wants. But there's there's usually a lot more flexibility in a design than you might think. And a lot of things are just like, well, I just held shift and hit left three times when I moved this over and it was generally in the right place. There's probably six pixels of wiggle room where it's not going to look any different really. So if exactly. in that space you land on your scale somewhere, go ahead and use that value, you know? Exactly. Um, yeah. I think a lot of time people just assume that, oh no, I need to get it pixel perfect. But if if you talk to the designers that you're working with, I think uh, you'll find that's not always the case. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. For sure. Just wanted to take a quick break to thank one of this week's sponsors, and that is Rollbar. So there are two major problems with relying on your users to submit bug reports to you when they find something broken in your app. Number one, you can't discover all bugs this way. And number two, some users don't even bother submitting bug reports. They just wait for you to fix it, and if you don't, they just leave the service. Now, the best software teams practice proactive error monitoring, which means you detect all the errors in your production apps and services in real time, and then you can debug important errors in minutes or hours, often before your users even notice. Uh, teams from big companies you might have heard of like Twilio, CircleCI, Instacart, they use Rollbar to do this. With Rollbar, you get a real-time feed of all your errors so you know exactly what's broken in production, and Rollbar automatically collects all the relevant data and metadata you need to debug those errors so you don't have to waste time sifting through logs. Debugging errors with Rollbar is crazy fast. You get the exact stack trace linked directly into your code base, the request parameters to easily reproduce the issue yourself, a data on which user is affected so you know if it's the same user repeating the same error again, what browser and operating system, basically everything you need all in one place. They also have this awesome telemetry feature that's kind of like getting a black box recorder after a crash but for errors. It shows you all the browser events leading up to that error. Uh, So if you aren't using Rollbar already, there's a special offer just for full stack radio listeners. If you head over to rollbar.com slash full stack radio, create an account and install Rollbar in your application, Rollbar will give you a $100 gift card that you can spend to support any of your favorite open source projects at Open Collective. So thanks to Rollbar for sponsoring the podcast this week. Back to the show. Uh, Let me think what else. Um... So when I when I would switch over and I would be styling, I would start with utility classes that I would add directly to the HTML. But eventually, I'd say in like 90, maybe 90% of the cases, you're good there. And, and this is one of the things to get your, your head around is the idea that a bunch of utility classes is bad mm. uh, for some reason. Uh, because you think, again, it's not semantic. I, I need to extract this. But I found in most cases, you really don't. So I, I'd be working on something thinking like, should I, should I extract this? And I would keep coming back to that. Like, well, is it a problem for me right now? Like, am I having to re- reproduce this in other areas? No. So what is that need to extract a nav bar class? 
or, or component. And then it it would always come back to like, well, I, I guess I don't need to. But there are definitely times, though, when it does feel, you kind of feel that gross factor. And so that's one thing I like about the, um, the Tailwind approach is you kind of get the best of both worlds. So if you do get to the point where all these utility classes are feeling rough for a particular area, then at that point, it almost demands that you create a component, which I which I much prefer. Uh, I've said this before. I like the idea that it has to fight for being a, a dedicated CSS component. And, and what you find is I don't have many of them at all. I mean, I'm not looking at my code base right now, but I bet it's less than 10 total. Wow. So because it's just... Go ahead. Um, what... What th- sorts of things did you find yourself creating CSS, like custom CSS components for specifically, yeah. if you can think? Uh, obviously, the first one is button. Okay. Um, and I think, hmm, you know what, if I can, I'll, I'll try to pull up the code yeah, base yeah, in a minute. go for it. But I, I have one for a button. I have some uh, something for forms where that was starting to hurt a little bit. I have one for a standard card where it's just reproduced throughout the entire site, or it's just a white background, certain amount of padding, a certain shadow, a certain border radius. So that was a situation where it's like, I would feel pain there uh, because I use it on so many different pages, so many different pages. So if I did choose a different padding level, it would start to hurt because yeah. things would become out of alignment. Mm-hmm. So personally, I think that is a good case where it's like, just go ahead and extract a component. You use it everywhere. It's almost like a core building block of the site. Uh, but what's nice is you can you can mix and match that. So you can have your core building block, which would be card or, or box, whatever you want to call it. But then you can, at that point, stack on extra utility classes if you do need to change the padding for that particular instance of the card. So you do get the best of both worlds there. With the card example specifically, um, was that a problem because you needed to create like card HTML sometimes in blade and sometimes in view and trying to just like extract a partial or a view component couldn't solve that problem. Cause it had to be like cross language. Is it? Uh, <laughs> mm, no. So in, in the case of card, it's just, okay. So a card, if you go to laracast.com slash, um, you just visit a series at, at Laracast. Those are all cards where you see each series. Mm-hmm. So that was a situation. It's pretty complex. Like you hover over it. It animates. Honestly, that was kind of a nightmare for, for me to do because my UI guy showed me like, here's how it should work. It should animate down. This section should animate up. And it's like, that doesn't really work very well with HTML <laughs> because you got to animate this up. But then this this border radius is no longer showing. So there's a lot of weird, funky stuff yeah. going on there to get that smooth animation. You'd be shocked. So those are situations you can't take a utility approach because sure. there's so many things where you're saying like, um, this element should have a background color, but when you hover over the card, then it should not have a background color, but the child should have a background color. <laughs> and then you should apply this animation when you hover over it. But while it's being hovered or focused, you need to add the after pseudo class to, you know, that stuff's like, I, I can't totally. even fathom how you would accomplish that with um, utilities. Got it. So, so that was so when, one When you point. talk about a card class, you mean Go specifically ahead. this like really fancy one that's on the homepage. I, in my head, I was thinking you meant like, something a lot more basic or it's just like a, a border and a white background and some padding honestly i meant both so i'm, I'm doing um one project now i'm working on the assets website for laracast mm-hmm. it's basically like where you would send people who want to grab your logo or or wallpapers or or any of that stuff um like 
publications and stuff like that. So in that case, a card genuinely refers to like a little white card with a yeah. with a border and a shadow. Okay. But uh, in the case of Laracas, sorry for confusing that. In the case of Laracas, it's genuinely a series card. So that's a situation where it was very quickly clear it needs to be its own component. Yeah, got it. So I, I, I would find that to be somewhat of a pain point because you start with the utility classes and then you feel like, okay, I can't do this. I feel like once you have a background image, you have to write traditional CSS, right? I think, most... it, I think it depends. My okay. approach usually is to use an inline style for the background image if I can okay. get oh, away with it. Yes. But... All right. This is a cool one to talk about too. Okay. I As I as I adopted uh, Tailwind, because I'd used Tailwind for lots of small projects, but this redesign was the first time I went all in uh, in the most real world case possible. And I realized... I didn't care that much if I did inline styling anymore because I realized it was <laughs> the exact same thing. Yeah. So what's cool about Tailwind is it's not it's not the same as doing inline styling. People say it's like the it's the first criticism when you hear about utility CSS is like, well, it's the exact same thing as doing inline CSS. It's not because you are you do have a set of parameters and like I said, you have this toolbox you reach from. It's not like you can just reference any color ever created uh, as an inline style, you still have your tool set. You have your margin one level. You have your margin two level. So it's not the same as saying uh, within a, a style attribute, margin bottom is six pixels. You know, you're still using a set of parameters there. But in cases like background images, I did find in many cases like, oh, I don't care if I just <laughs> yeah. put background image directly in here. And again, it's that thing where it's like my entire career, I had been told, no, Jeff, don't do that. Don't mix them. Like, don't cross the streams. Uh, and then the more I switched over to this approach, it's like, oh, it doesn't really matter. Uh, I mean, there's certainly many cases where I would go for a, a CSS file, but lots of other cases where it was fine. Yeah, yeah. It, isn't it funny? This the simplest thing of adding an inline style. You almost feel like a bad developer. It's almost like this self-flagellation yeah, thing totally. where you should be punished for it, using the It looks the style like some tag. temporary piece of code that, like, oh, I'm going to delete that later. Like, it sends that signal. You know what I mean? I know. Just anytime you see like, the style attribute, it's like, oh, I know. <laughs> it's like if you you submitted a, a PR, the maintainer would be like, what the fuck is this? Yeah. <laughs> Get, you know. Uh, and then I started realizing it's, it's, it's not it's not a big deal. Yeah. No. If, if anything, like. I think the complaint about the inline styles thing is funny because people say it's just like inline styles. And in my head, I'm thinking, well, it kind of depends what you don't like about inline styles. Because if you're saying it's just like inline styles and that means that you're not separating your concerns and that's blah, 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 evil. It's like, well, in that case, yeah, it is a lot like inline styles. But the things to me, it's like, I actually think inline styles are great. I would probably just use inline styles if there was a way for me to do hover states and media queries and inline styles, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But that's why I need glasses, not because right. I'm trying to do like some separation of concerns thing. And of course, to be able to work from a set of constraints too, um, which is why um, I find like all the CSS and JS stuff pretty interesting because they that's kind of the approach there is it's basically a style attribute, except you can do media queries. You can reference like a theme variable that you import from some javascript module that contains all your all your stuff um mm -hmm. so th it's interesting there's a lot of similarities between i think like css and js and tailwind are trying to solve the same problem in different contexts a lot of the time um yeah it's very cool it does make me laugh it, how disgusted people are when when they encounter this stuff I, I wish there was a way around it i think about it a lot 
because everyone, I, I was reading a, a tweet thread the other day of the exact same thing of just complete disgust at how you would, at how you would infect your HTML in that way. And again, the, these, these semantic terms always come up. Uh, and it's like, everyone's breaking the rules from the very beginning. I, I remember even in 2008, everyone would have their semantic class names, but then all of us had a float right and a float left class. Sure. These were like the first utility classes ever <laughs> back then. And everyone kind of knew like, uh, I know I, they would apologize ahead of time. I, I know this isn't semantic, but it's, it's useful. It yeah. would always be the justification. I think I first saw it in, uh, I can't remember, one of the old 960 frameworks or maybe a, a bootstrap, but it is always preceded by like an apology for its existence. <laughs> and it's like, no, it's there because it's freaking useful. Yeah. But when you, when you expand that to like margin two or margin three, suddenly people have a more visceral reaction to it. It's, it's a very funny thing. Yeah. There was even like an era where, I mean, people felt guilty about using classes like call SM six, you know, because it's, that's a presentational class name. I should, I, it should be called like, uh, users or, and sidebar or not even sidebar, because that tells you that the navigation's on the side. It might not always be on the side. So you need to come right. up with a better name for it or whatever. But yeah, it's kind right, of that, That's the funny thing too. Like when people think they're being semantic and they're naming so often, it's like, no, you're not. Like if you really decode what's going on here, you're not being semantic. You're just sneaking it in. You're not yeah. saying left, but you're still basically saying yeah, left or you're saying sure. left or right. It's the exact same thing. Yeah. It's funny. It seems like in every single uh, tech community, there is this concept of purity versus mm -hmm. uh, pragmatism. Like we, we talk about it a lot in, in the Laravel world, like the purists versus people who just want to get stuff done. Uh, and it, it seems to replicate in every single community I see. It's very interesting. Yeah. Um, so kind of getting back to the, the tailwind Laracast's redesign process, and we were talking about, uh, sort of how you were creating custom classes for things like, um, cards. I think maybe yeah. something people would be interested in knowing is what does that actually look like for you in terms of tooling and stuff and general like organization? Are you still using like SAS or stylus or something in combination with tailwind and creating like separate files for these components yeah. or I've, have you moved over to just like post CSS plus like a nesting plugin or something or the dream is I switch over to uh, post CSS, but I'm still using SAS at the moment. So what, what often happens, I think for, for most people is you'll have your utility classes on uh, an HTML element and you will get to the point where it's like, oh, I, I, I need to extract this. So I think you have a few choices. Uh, one would be, of course, you you create a SAS partial or, or just a little CSS. It doesn't have to be SAS, anything you want. Uh, and then you just move it over there and then you can use the apply. I'm not sure what you call it, Adam, a directive. What yeah, do you call that? I call it a directive, but it's kind of a made up term. <laughs> yeah, it works for me. Yeah. And then you can use the apply directive. And so what happens, what's, what's very cool is you can basically highlight all of the classes within the HTML class attribute, and then you just copy and paste them into the SAS file. Uh, and then you add apply in front of it and you're done. Now you can replace it with with your component name. So that's obviously the, the most um, common, probably, refactor. But another option would be if you're using something like Vue or React, you could move it to uh, like a dedicated UI component. So like th think if you use Vue and you have, 
I don't know, like a nav item. Maybe all of your nav items have a huge amount of uh, attributes and you're repeating it over and over. If you want, you could create a nav item view component. Even if it doesn't have that much behavior, you could move all of your uh, Tailwind classes into that component. And then from now on, you just reference nav item and you get all of that CSS for free. So that would be a refactor that didn't require you to write any new CSS. You're still yeah. adopting that that uh, keep it simple approach, uh, which I used many, many times. I, I think you do find situations, though, where it's a little, um, I don't know, it, it feels wrong, I guess. I, I, I would be curious to hear your thoughts on this, where I'd create a view component, and it's like, there's no behavior here. The only reason I'd be doing it would be to remove the the duplication to dry yeah. up the um, the tailwind classes. So in those situations sometimes it would feel a little off to me and I would create a um, just a sass partial instead mm -hmm. that I would import. Yeah, that's an int interesting what are your thoughts? one. Yeah. I don't really know um what the sort of idiomatic like if you talked to like Evan or like the some of the people who are really deep in the view or react communities like what their opinions are on creating almost like behaviorless components. It's like just trying to extract a presentational pattern. I don't think it's right. ever really struck me as being like a bad thing. Um, no, not a bad thing, but it just feels like, hmm, is this feels like a lot of work just to remove. Like, all I'm doing is removing the need to repeat all of those utility classes and yeah. that's it. But I find, it, and that's usually not the case in, in, in most situations, if I extract the view components, like I get that that free um, that free templating, I, I get that templating for free, and then I can also add the behavior on top of it, yeah. which is a nice thing. So in many cases, I extract the view component, and that solves my problem of having to repeat these uh, these class attributes over and over uh, everywhere. Yeah. yeah, it's kind of nice, even if you just have. Um if you have a little bit of custom CSS for a component too, because with Vue, you can just have that style block just for like the couple weird things that are maybe not very like utility friendly to implement, you know what I mean? That are kind of yeah. depending on like related elements in some weird way or something. Um, yeah, so I that is one thing I've worried about a little bit is sometimes I assume for the types of apps you and I build, like Laravel backend with, mm -hmm. with front end in general, um, you can sometimes end up in situations where your CSS is defined in a bunch of different places. And this is something I've tried to be a little careful of. So now you would have your utility classes directly in your HTML. So when you need to tweak the presentation, sometimes that's your first place you would go is directly to the HTML. Yeah. You could have, in less common scenarios, inline styling. You could have dedicated CSS files, or you could be defining your CSS through a view component, like a view single file yeah. component. I haven't really run into any roadblocks yet, but it's, it does feel a little weird to me when I'm not exactly sure where a piece of CSS was defined. And yeah. there's many cases where it's like, is, is this in the view component? Is this in the partial where, like it takes me a minute, which I don't like. Yeah, so I, I found point. myself, yeah. So I found myself not reaching for the style tag for a view component quite as much for that reason or i i don't have a problem with it but i feel like you just got to pick one and stick with it yeah it's kind of so like, i don't know if i love go ahead if, if you're gonna write custom css at all why not just do it one way so that you always know like when there's a custom css class somewhere i kind of know where to look for it 
Right, kind of the the, the convention over configuration thing. Mm-hmm. So that is one road. It's not even a roadblock, but it it is something I've been thinking about. Just like a decision uh, that you have to think about and can kind exactly. of exactly. It's a decision you have to to make or something you have to figure out, which mm-hmm. I don't like. I, I like yeah. knowing like nope, it's going to be here. It follows <laughs> this convention. If the com- if the component is named this, the file will be named that. You know, you want to remove as many decisions as possible. Yeah, yeah, uh, which is a good way to go. So. Um, one other question that I have for you is I think Laracast is a pretty interesting example of a site that does quite a bit of flashy stuff, I think, compared to what most of like the Tailwind demos will kind of show you just using like Tailwind's CDN styles out of the box. There's a lot of stuff that yeah. you're doing that you can't easily do with yeah. Tailwind out of the box, like in terms of little animations and like transitions on hover and and just kind of the more fancy stuff, you know? So I'd be curious to know um, how that fit into your workflow. Did you find yourself creating like custom utilities to be able to like reuse transitions on things? Or did you do most of that stuff with like transition stuff baked into component classes? Mm -hmm. Um, Like how much did you extend Tailwind in a way that felt like you were like adding more Tailwindy stuff versus adding um, like Laracast specific components and stuff? Okay. I didn't extend Tailwind too much. So, so first, I'm going to blame my my UI guy entirely for the animations. <laughs> there were so many times when he would he would go to the staging server and he'd be like, "Hey, when you hover over that, it's supposed to animate down." And I'd always think, "Really? <laughs> Do I have to freaking figure this out?" Um, so that would change things because often when you're looking at like a I don't know a, a Zeppelin asset, it's not overly clear that this animates and this show you know stuff like that. So I blame him entirely for that stuff, <laughs> uh, but I did add I did add some classes to help with that, but not not really in the form of extending Tailwind too much. I found okay. the what what Tailwind offers out of the box is really useful for like ninety five percent of of everything. There were lots of situations when he would say like when you hover over this button, you know, a little material button, and it changes from white to blue, uh, a background. He would often say that needs to animate or it needs to transition the background color. And he, sure. he said something like it, it makes a, it makes for a more app like experience. I don't yeah. know. With designer talk. Fancy busy. Uh, so I would add me. things like that where it's like, okay, I keep using a transition here where it's like transition all over a third of a second yep. or transition background color over a third of a second. So that's a situation where it's like, okay, I do this everywhere. That's a good, that, that's something that probably needs to be declared somewhere. So that I'm not repeating the transition time mm-hmm. of 0.3 seconds over and over, because then you just you end up reproducing the problem we had earlier with colors. So yeah. I would have basic transition, call it a component if you want. I would just have transition classes that I could reach for: transition one, transition two, transition three, and then I could just paste those in just like any other uh, Tailwind utility. Nice. So I did things like that. But yeah, it, I, I've been amazed how much. Uh, I haven't had to do that actually, but for the for the like you said for the animation stuff, there's no way around it. Uh, you you have to write custom yeah. CSS. Yeah, so like, I have worried like the true animation ahead. stuff. You mean like the like the keyframes, like things going totally bananas animation stuff? Right. I, I don't yeah. even know how you would do that in Tailwind. Yeah, I mean, and then there, there's <laughs> other things. You know, I, I could kick myself because I think you solved this. You either solved it long time ago and I didn't know or you solved it while I was working on my own project but that thing where it's like 
let's say you have an element that should be red, but when you hover over the parent element, it should now turn green. Yeah. I had lots of stuff like that that I didn't know how to do in Tailwind to, to declare when this element is hovered, this should now be red. Yeah. You know, you have you have the basic Tailwind stuff like hover colon text red. So when I hover over this link, the text should be red. But to instead say, when you hover over the parent div, this text should be red. Yeah. I had lots and lots of situations like that. And I think I discovered Tailwind has some kind of group. Yeah, there's a group uh, hover thing now. So basically you drop a, a group class on the parent as sort of like a marker. And then on the actual child that you want to affect, you can do group dash hover colon. And that just kind of says like when someone hovers over whatever the parent group is, however you've marked that, um, right. then apply this style. Um yeah, and that is a really useful feature of Tailwind for sure, although it has led to lots of weird decisions that had to be made in terms of like, how does the responsive ones work? Because now there's two classes. Does there have to be a responsive prefix on both or just the first class or just the second class? And trying yeah, to figure man, out all tricky. the different... Um, I'm sure it's hard to figure out at what point do you just say, okay, Tailwind doesn't need to solve this problem. Once you hit that point, then just write normal CSS. Yeah. I'm sure it's hard to figure out how much Tailwind should grow to to address things like that. Yeah, it is a hard problem. I mean, I think uh, we made a good decision at the beginning in like sort of designing it with the mindset that like this is meant to be something that people are supposed to build on top of and supposed to extend. And um, we wrote a lot of documentation that sort of says like, if, if you were the creator of Tailwind, this is how you would add a new class to your project. So you don't have to like worry about, oh, how, how do I add my own classes or customize classes? Cause the biggest right. problem I always ran into with existing CSS frameworks was when you inevitably need to add new stuff to it, just this paralyzing moment of like, okay, how would Mark Otto add a new class to Bootstrap on his own project? Yes. I, you yes. know what I mean? I want to do it the way that he would because I'm sure he has a way and that's probably the best way, but I can yeah. think of four ways to do it and I I don't really know which one is the recommended approach. Yeah, um, that is a big difference between something like Bootstrap and, and Tailwind. So Bootstrap is great, uh, especially for developers who don't know CSS, but it is true. Like as soon as you want to change that nav bar, you're screwed. You know, you're going to you're going to spend a half an hour like okay, what is which class does the padding and it's like any convenience you got almost goes immediately out the window. At least from my experience, yeah. trying to make at least to my understanding to to make bootstrap do what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. It's really great for kind of the boilerplate stuff. So Tailwind is almost the complete opposite of that. It's like you need to know I I guess that would be the only knock against Tailwind and it's not a knock because it's just it's a prerequisite. You have to know CSS to write Tailwind, whereas with Bootstrap, you don't. I, I know people who don't know CSS would use uh, Twitter Bootstrap or, or Bulma. So it's, 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 just, it's just how it is. Uh, I, I still much prefer Tailwind, though. Uh, but yeah, it, it stinks because you can't pull in newcomers without saying, you got to know CSS. You got to know what Flexbox does. You yeah. know? Uh, I, I don't know how you get around that. Yeah. We are hoping that we can make the onboarding ramp a little bit easier in some ways because something that was like an important realization for me was when I I realized that with Bootstrap, um, you have a lot of these component classes like your navbar, right? But if you look at the CSS for a navbar, there's like 
six different classes that you have to apply or something right to the different pieces yeah. of the nav bar to kind of get it all working in sort of different places and at first i was thinking okay well bootstrap is really just css right like you take the classes you add them to your html and it makes your html do what you want but eventually i realized that that's not really true because when was the last time that you were able to create a bootstrap nav bar without going to their docs and copying and pasting the html because you have no idea right. what the structure is no that, clue for how it actually needs to be for it to work um so bootstrap has just as much of a dependency on or sorry to use bootstrap you sort of need them to give you html just as much as css and i think with True. with tailwind we can almost double down on that a little bit and be like okay like you want like a nav bar here's like a nice looking nav bar built with just utilities just copy and paste the whole thing and the nice thing about it is if you do just want to tweak the padding between items well that's pretty easy to do because the padding classes are right there you can kind of figure it out a little bit easier so my hope is that there's ways we can provide more like copy and paste html pieces um, for people to almost use as a way to sort of teach themselves css in a way you know what i mean it's like here's like a login form well what happens if i change this class oh i kind of see what's happening here started to learn how flexbox works just like by accident yeah. you know stuff like that so we're ho I'm hoping that by by instead of trying to make things easier by creating like higher level CSS abstractions, I think the better approach for making things easier for people is like pre-built HTML. That's that's my theory, anyways. Yeah, I like it because I, I would assume that is one onboarding issue you would have is is Tailwind most appeals I think to people who have written a lot of CSS and you've hidden those pain points and you realize oh I would love to be able to extend this thing without having to create whole new uh, classes in my CSS file so this is where you start you start leaning towards utilities but developers who don't have like back-end developers who don't have quite as much experience with CSS I think their first instinct is like, what the hell is this? Why don't you just give it a name so that I don't have to know to add like these eight different classes? Yeah. Because And then the only solution would be to educate them of like why it's beneficial to take that approach versus everything instantly becoming a component that they can reach for. So onboarding has got to be a little tricky with, uh, with Tailwind. Yeah. I think uh, a lot of it is just being comfortable with knowing that it's not going to be right for certain people in terms of like yeah. what they know and what they actually care about getting better at. Like there's a lot of people who want to build side projects and stuff who aren't really invested in like becoming better at design or better at front end. You know what I mean? Like that, like if we just, we're making that harder for them in a lot of ways than bootstrap is and they don't care about the payoff there. So, mm -hmm. you know, there's no point in trying to, win those people over it's just better to accept i think that there's a bunch of different frameworks and if this is what you value or this is where you want to spend your time or whatever maybe this one's better for you versus this one or uh, whatever because mm -hmm. there's there definitely seems to be a big enough pool of people that are excited about doing things sort of the, the tailwind way that it's uh for sure it's a fun and you know engaging community anyways so don't have to yeah. win over everyone for sure. I can tell you another area, a pain point I would run into. It wasn't very common, but there are certain sections of the site where the responsive styling is really different from mobile to desktop. Okay. So you have your, your, your common sites where clearly you can see the desktop view was designed, and then for mobile, all the flex box gets turned off, basically, and everything just becomes block level, right? Yep. <laughs> it's the easiest thing. I don't blame anyone. Uh, 
in the case of Laracast, in many cases, the mobile layout is its own thing in many situations. So he would, my UI guy would, for a series card, we have what you see on the desktop view. But for mobile, if you're browsing, it's different. So it doesn't use up as much vertical space. And it ended up getting tricky for me because it's like, well, it's almost a different component, but it's not. It's all using the same stuff, but the padding is different. The the text size is different. The the background is different. And I, I did hit a roadblock there where it's like, okay, do I keep adding responsive helpers to the class? And this is what I would start with the class attribute where it's like, okay, Here's the mobile layout, and then for desktop, we're going to change the margin and padding. But there were so many little changes that needed to be made, it got to a point where the utilities really did feel like they were infecting the HTML, mm. where it was just too much. Yeah. And those were situations where it's like, okay, I no longer feel like this is better than being defined in a CSS file. But what's nice is that's very much the... The rarity it was like five percent of the time in most situations you really you turn off flexbox and it's fine yeah uh but yeah in those situations like you're looking at a massive class attribute where even on your imac it wraps to a new line <laughs> and you're trying to find like the small breakpoint versus the widescreen breakpoint and i would think to myself this isn't necessarily better yeah uh, so in those case situations um i i would move it to a css partial and i felt like it did improve things yeah but only in rare situations. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. Only, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, it's hard to get to get that right. I think um, one approach that I've seen people use that I think it depends on your taste if this feels like an improvement or not is to basically group all the responsive classes and then put them on their own lines. So you have like okay. class equals and then you have like a multi-line class where it's like all the base stuff, then the small stuff, then the medium stuff, whatever. And then it kind of feels sort of like what your CSS would feel like where you have like the media block, then the next media block, then the next media block. But that yeah. can res- that just makes your CSS or your HTML taller instead of wider, right? Um, right. And, that, and then That's it can okay, be sometimes though. hard to like visually parse like where tags start and end. So that introduces its own problems. I think another yeah. approach that has very obvious downsides but can be useful sometimes is if i find myself trying to do a lot of really crafty responsive stuff sometimes it almost just feels better to just duplicate the html and just toggle between like hidden and block on each of them and just just do the styles that they're supposed to have and just duplicate the markup and not even (laughs) worry about it (laughs) totally Um, there are situations i do that exact thing where working with my ui guys sometimes he would show me the mobile version of a a page versus the desktop page. And it looks great, but it's like, well, that doesn't really work with HTML. Like you have this down here on the desktop, but for the mobile, it's all the way up here. And I'm not using CSS grids yet. And I have no clue how to do that. You know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to suddenly position absolute everything. (laughs) So there are lots of situations where it's like, okay, the, um, the, the, the series thumbnail for mobile is up here, but then I have that exact HTML down here. Uh, and I just toggle it. So for yeah. mobile, the desktop version doesn't show. For desktop, the mobile version doesn't show. It, it feels kind of gross at first, but yeah, it's like the only way in a, a couple of situations mm-hmm. I could make it work is to have those toggles. You're shipping like double the HTML if you go and view totally. source. But I mean, at the end of the day, it's for it it's works. The, it's the easiest way to do it. And it also gives you the most control, right? So it really lets you make the perfect desktop version and the perfect mobile version without weird compromises. Right. Right, um, versus making an entirely new website yeah. for, for mobile. 
One thing that I've been pretty interested in lately that uh, I'm curious to see like where this goes in the future. But if you look at the for you know the new mobile Twitter site, Um, it's built with React Native web, so it's like a React Native app, but the build target is HTML. So it's the same code that you would write for iOS, but it targets JavaScript and HTML, which is kind of interesting. They don't use any media queries on the entire thing, and it's fully responsive. And the way that they do it is all of the the viewport size detection is done in JavaScript. So they just use like the resize observer API and they just check like, okay, when the viewport changes, well, now we have that information in JavaScript as like a variable. We can literally make any decision we want about how the view should look based on this information. So that might mean instead of loading like the um, the desktop series card component, they load the mobile series card component because oh, it's just an awesome. if statement on the uh, on the variable, right? So you're not limited to what you can do with media queries. You can literally use that information to entirely change like the tree of components that you're rendering. That's nuts. I swear every time you figure something out, there's always somebody that's like, actually, here's kind of the new way you're going to be figuring out pretty soon. It's been that way since the beginning of my career. <laughs> So you constantly have to relearn how to uh, make circles and stuff like that. It's, which it's, it's interesting for sure. Um, I don't yeah. know how practical it'll be for like the thing is like when you're building server rendered apps, which is like most of what people in the Laravel community are doing, those sorts of th- things aren't really options for you. And that doesn't mean like you're stuck in some like legacy technology. I think it's just like, there's a lot of things you can do if you're building an SPA that are different when you're not. And Right. Knowing how to build like a Laravel app that renders on the server, I think is like timeless knowledge in a lot of sense because like servers that generate HTML and send it to the browser that runs CSS and JavaScript, like that's technology that's going to exist forever. So it's always hard to know like how much you should bet on some of these new things uh, because For sure. who's to say that React isn't just like another Microsoft Silverlight, you know, 10 years from now or another Flash or whatever. Man, I felt the temptation to learn Silverlight too. Everyone was talking about it. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, try to pay attention. Try to see what interesting things are going on, but at the same time, try not to try to keep one foot in like the cemented path that I know is going to be around forever. You know? Yeah. Just wanted to take a quick break to thank one of this week's sponsors, and that is Cloudinary. So you've probably heard me talk about Cloudinary on the show before. It truly is just the absolute best way to host images and media for your web apps. It's a truly fantastic service. But what I want to talk about this week in specific is that on May 1st and 2nd, Cloudinary is hosting the third annual ImageCon in San Francisco, California at the iconic Palace Hotel. So if you aren't familiar with ImageCon, it's the ultimate event for developers who work with rich media and includes talks on everything from the next generation of image formats being discussed by the JPEG XL committee to deep dives into performance optimization in media in the age of progressive web apps. It's a multi-day conference and it has a full day of pre-conference training covering Cloudinary fundamentals and then another day with 12 different workshops that dive into all sorts of advanced Cloudinary capabilities. So if you're interested in checking out the conference, they have early bird pricing going on through till April 1st where you can save 100 bucks on a conference pass and if you use the coupon code full stack radio 15 at checkout 
you can actually save an additional 15% off. Cloudinary was also kind enough to give me one free ticket. So if you're in San Francisco and want to check out this conference for free, the first person to email me and ask me for the ticket will get a coupon code that they can use to attend the conference for free. So thanks as always to Cloudinary for sponsoring Full Stack Radio. Again, it's an awesome service. Check it out if you haven't already. Back to the show. Oh, actually, I just thought of another one. Just switching back to Tailwind, little uh, little bonuses yeah. to switching to Tailwind. So in, in previous iterations of the site, when I would have to make a change, something even as small as like, oh, I accidentally got that margin wrong. You got to go back to the CSS partial, fix the margin, recompile it down, push it to your server, and bust the cache. Mm-hmm. With Tailwind, you're updating an HTML file. So when you push it, there's no cache to bust. Yeah. So it, it helps with performance across the board there. Because you're not making every visitor to your site re-download a mass, like a 100K of, of CSS, all because you wanted to add a margin to the about page, right? Yeah, totally. So it's a huge win that so much of the time you're not writing new CSS. Like That's a huge benefit to utilities, uh, to a utility framework. The CSS is basically done for you, at least 90% of it. Most of what you're doing is editing HTML files. So especially for, for large sites, it's a massive win that you're not constantly breaking the cache if you're pushing uh, to production multiple times a day. It's a yeah. big win. I think realistically, too, most most of the time when you're making like a design change using a traditional CSS approach, you're editing HTML and CSS anyways. Like it's very rare in my experience that doing redesigning a corner of a page doesn't involve changing some markup also right. you know it's it's very rare that it's purely done in css so with the utility approach you're just kind of making it so you only have to work in one place which is it's really nice yeah yeah totally so before you would have two files open your css and your html and you keep going back and forth and you just chopped one in half once you switch to a utility approach mm-hmm. yeah i like it yeah it's fun so with your um with laracasts are you like just on the subject of like the CSS performance and caching stuff, have you tried to like purge CSS at all on on the Laracast site? Oh yes, I have to use it. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I would I would think it would be a Tailwind best practice. Do you recommend most yeah, people I, take that I, approach? I do. I'm a little scared to lean on it too much because there, I think there are situations where it's not practical for people to use it maybe you're adding tailwind to like an existing site that's doing a lot of weird dynamic stuff with classes and it's going to be really hard to whitelist the right stuff and it's just going to be hard to get it working and like reliably only stripping out the stuff it's supposed to strip out so i'm afraid to like let tailwind get super out of control and say just use purge css because i don't think everyone can but man if you can which for any greenfield project you absolutely can like there's only a couple small things you need to keep in mind to sort of write you know, purgeable HTML, um, which is basically don't concatenate strings. End of, <laughs> that's the only thing you need to know, and then it'll <laughs> yeah. just work. Um, oh, man, the 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 benefits are crazy. Like the, it's very hard to write CSS that's bigger than like ten kilobytes gzipped. Very hard if you're yeah, using yeah. purge. For for anyone who doesn't know what we're talking about, Purge CSS is so when you compile with Tailwind, it's going to generate all of these utility classes. Uh, and many of those times, you're not using some of those utility classes. Like you may find out you never use your margin top five class anywhere in your HTML, but you still have that in your compiled file. Mm-hmm. So what Purge CSS will do is it will scan all of your HTML, maybe your view files, and it's just going to find 
every case where you use the class and keep it. And if you didn't use it, it strips it out. So for something like Tailwind, it becomes massively beneficial. So if you add it to your build process, you may find that the, the CSS file cuts in half or even more. I think for me, it was like a 60% uh, cut. It's nuts. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes more for sure. I mean, something else I thought was interesting is the other day I was using testing because I'm working on this new version of Tailwind and I'm always trying to be a little careful of what the default out of the box file size is because a lot of people are going to make quick judgments on that without understanding how to customize it and keep your file size, you know, reasonable. Um, but I, I noticed that tailwind out of the box, a new version unminified and stuff is like twice as big as bootstrap. And I was like, Oh, that's horrifying. Like that's going to make yeah. people kind of, you know, uncomfortable. But then I ran both tailwind and uh, bootstrap through broadly, which is kind of like, the better version of gzip and tailwind was smaller than bootstrap after compressing it even though it was double the file size and that's not even using Weird. purge css and i think it's just because there's so much duplication in the tailwind css file in terms of like you know um text red darker text red darkest like that text red chunk is repeated a million times so it just gets yeah replaced with a placeholder and it compresses it like crazy so um that was cool information to find out that you know it's still a really reasonable file size it's like i think the full build is like 16 kilobytes compressed which is oh that's it what would be without using that like 550 kilobytes without (laughs) and that's not even i was gonna say at a certain point uh, if it were even (laughs) 300k or something like that there is a point where it's like okay it sucks but you're going to cache it long term and because you're using tailwind you're not busting the cache nearly as much as any other site so it's almost like all right you take on a little cost at the beginning but then it's cached from yeah and you don't have to worry about it it's like the size of one jpeg on your site so totally but Half a meg is is large. A little aggressive, yeah. <laughs> yeah, a little aggressive, but you know, for for developer projects, who cares? But yeah, yeah. I guess you have to worry about that. So, so what is this tool called? Broccoli. Broccoli. I don't know. Um, it. You're using Broccoli? it on Laracast, actually. I'm looking at it right now. So, um, it's probably just part of like how your Nginx setup is. So, it's it's a oh, compression okay. algorithm, I think, created by Google. That I don't know the exact details of how it works, but it compresses things a lot more than gzip under certain circumstances and tailwind specifically gets about 50 percent smaller with broadly than it does with gzip uh, just because of how much repetition there is in the file oh Um, yeah i'm using it through cloudflare yeah yeah so cloudflare (laughs) does all that stuff for you automatically i'll tell you how mature i am i was on cloudflare a few months ago and they're like hey you should turn on broadly and i was like okay Click. And I wasn't entirely sure what it did, but it said it would make things better. And uh, so I'm glad I clicked it. Yeah. Yeah. It's yep. it's awesome. Cool, man. Well, uh, yeah, we've been going for a while now, so I don't want to take up your whole afternoon. But um, is there anything that you wanted to end on or any notes that you wanted to add? Or uh, Sure. Good? I have one question for you. Okay. What are your thoughts on uh, theming with Tailwind? This is something oh, I'm man. teasing. Rabbit oh, hole. Great. It's something I've been toying around with for a, um, a side project I'm working on, and I'm not sure how I want to target it. So just a, a quick idea, like let's say you have your light skin mm-hmm. uh, theme and the background color is white. So on the website, you have BG white or PG gray, whatever it is. But then you want to offer a dark th- uh, theme for your users. Yeah. Well, suddenly that background needs to be background black or whatever. So how are you toggling those? I assume you're doing some form of CSS variables, but I yeah. haven't. 
looked I, into it too much yet. I think CSS variables is the best approach. So I have um, an example repo where I've messed around with this. So I'll link in the show notes for people to look at. But what what I found to work the best was basically define all your Tailwind colors as CSS variables in your Tailwind config file. So instead of saying like, you know, black is... Um, uh, you know, hashtag, hashtag, Jesus Christ. I've been infected huh. by the, the social media <laughs> ruining my vocabulary. Pound sign, <laughs> zero, zero, zero. Um, you would do like uh, whatever it is. Is it like var dash dash black or something, right? Yeah. Um, so define all of them that way and not as real colors. And then in your CSS file, have like that colon root selector and do all the mappings there. And then um, you have a class that you can basically toggle on the body that's like a, a dark mode or something. And that just redefines all those CSS variables. And then basically you would make take black and make it white or something. Now the names all of a sudden start to feel like really stupid because they're doing like the opposite of what you expect. Um, so what I think I would do is I would probably rethink a lot of the very literal names and try to come up with something that felt more... Like primary, secondary, that kind of stuff. Yeah, or or even just stuff like, yeah, something like that. Um, on sites in the past, I've done like names like text soft, text muted, you know what I mean? For mm. like your different kind of shades of gray. And then you might have like text inverted soft, text inverted muted. And that way okay. it's kind of relative to whatever you're thinking of light mode or dark mode. I, I, it would take some thinking, I think, to do it really well and i think that's um it's always going to be a little bit of a hard problem it sort of forces you back into the more of a traditional css naming mindset i think where you you have to try and jump up a level of abstraction to try and avoid names just looking completely incorrect like when bg red is actually yellow you know what i mean like that's always the argument against using like the literal color names so Um, i'm trying to wrap this around my head so you'd have some kind of JavaScript that would toggle a class on your body tag, yeah. right? Can I, I, I don't know this, can I, when I write my CSS, can the body selector set variables, like within that selector, can I do that? Um, like I'm, I'm trying to yes. figure out where yeah. you would toggle the variable. So y- you know values. what I'm gonna do is I'll, I'll paste this over to you in the Zoom chat so you can look at it while we talk about it. And I'll, I'll link it up for other people to look at it. So this is a direct link to the CSS file from the, the repo that I was talking about. Oh, perfect. But you can see there's um, a couple of these different classes, like theme startup. And then it defines like color BG primary, color BG secondary. Okay. Um, and there's three different themes here. And then if you jump out to the top of the repo and look at like the index.html file, uh, you can see there's kind of like three root divs in there that have each one of those themes applied. So all the HTML inside each of those divs is exactly the same. Like BG inverse font body is kind of like the, you know, base class oh, okay. for the whole section. But all the all the markup is identical in there in terms of classes and stuff. But the colors are all changing because as soon as you have that parent class that changes the definition of the CSS variable, that applies inside of it. So now... Okay, so that's not too bad, actually. Yeah. It, you, to be honest, I did not know... I haven't used, like, traditional CSS variables too much. So I didn't know that within a CSS selector, you could actually set a variable. Yeah, so it's th- very cool. That's, like, the whole... That's exciting story to me. Like, being able to, like, remove duplication, sure, we could do that with preprocessors. But having yeah. it be, like, dynamic... 
and change at runtime, that, that's really cool. Right. So for the listeners, I'm looking at a theme startup class, and within it, there are CSS variables like color, BG, primary. So then you could just create a new class like theme. Adam has theme boring here, uh, but within that selector, you would have different CSS variables that you would update for your new theme. So then, as long as you reference those in the proper places, they all just cascade down to to update. So then you would just have to um, have some kind of toggle where you update uh, your theme class, like a, yeah. a view component or basic JavaScript. All right, I, I'm happy to see this. It's not as difficult as I thought it was going to be. Yeah, the, but the you do have that issue where naming. you'd have to refactor away from the naming. Yeah, which would kind of suck. So that begs the question: Is there any? I guess there is an argument for some sites to never use like text red, text green. If you know you're going to need theming. You're just yeah, gonna have to refactor that all the way so. again. I think so. I think I think um, that's like a common argument that people throw in my face when it comes to Tailwind. It's like, well, what if you need to support themes? And it's like, what if you don't? You know, like, exactly. And it's um, that it's that same argument again. You you can't base decisions on what if because most sites are never gonna have theming. Yeah, I, I have maybe one of all the ones I've ever ever created that have a theme toggle. So you can't think that way unless you actually know. In six months, we're going to switch over to this. Yeah. You just can't get into that mindset of, of coding for what if. The only tricky thing with the CSS variables, aside from the naming, which I think probably most people don't care about, is that there's no support in IE 11 for CSS variables. Um, but the nice thing about it is it's such like a progressive enhancement sort of thing anyways that um, who cares? You know, like if you're... 0.05% of visitors using IE 11 can't switch to dark mode, like install Chrome, you know? Exactly. Um, it's not like a deal breaker where it's like Flexbox doesn't work, so your whole layout is completely broken, or CSS Grid doesn't work in IE 11, really, um, you know? So that's the reason I haven't really played around with CSS Grid is because uh, there's still enough people using IE 11 that I would rather it just use Flexbox because, honestly, there's nothing I can't do with Flexbox that I would want to do with Grid so far anyways. Um, yeah. Even though Grid looks like a nice, simple, declarative like API for doing a lot of things, but I'm looking at browser stats right now. It seems like for the last year and a half, well, this is IE and Edge combined represent about four percent of traffic. I bet IE is less than half that. I'm not sure actually. I, I wish know. they wouldn't have combined them. Yeah, it's but, uh, but it's funny because if you look at like CanIuse.com, Edge comes in at 1.64 percent global usage. And IE okay. is 2.26. So somehow IE11 still has more usage than Edge, even though on Windows 10, the only way to get to IE11 is through like some obscure control panel somewhere. You know what I mean? Um, <laughs> People are But stubborn. I think you probably have to look at, yeah, you have to look at your own stats, I guess, which yeah. I don't really look at enough. Um, yeah, exactly. You, you, It really doesn't help to go to can I use because, well, of course it does for, for bigger sites, but... For things I build, it's going to be so skewed. So for yeah. Laracast, it's literally like half a percent. It's and I'm and I'm amazed that the half percent of people are accessing Laracast through like, IE11 or whatever. Yeah, I, IE11. Like, what are you thinking? Going to Laracast? Who are you? The only thing I can uh, think of is it's people who have a job they don't like, where they have to use IE11, and they're trying to level up their web developer skills secretly, yeah, or they're going to Laracast.com and they they typed it in wrong. <laughs> yeah, maybe there's a Laracast website hope for animals i swear this came after i created laracast so i keep having people that are like what is this cat's website when they type it in wrong 
this is hilarious. And this doesn't really even I've seem like a Laravel related joke at all. It just seems like I it's... I know, dude. It's, it's, it's not. <laughs> I've one contacted them before because oh, I just want to buy it and redirect it to my site because I yeah. own like laracast.com, yeah. laracast.org, all those that just redirect right back to me, but they ignore me. Wow. What punks. are the odds of that? That's hilarious. I know. <laughs> I know. Cool, man. Well, uh, maybe that's a good place to start wrapping up. So um, is there anything that you wanted to kind of plug or anything before we go i know like you're doing a really cool laracast series right now where you're actually building an app with tailwind which might be interesting for people who uh who are listening yeah i, I so i'm building a uh like i said earlier the assets website for laracast so ideally when it's done if you you right click on the logo i saw another site do this and i thought it was very cool if you right click on the laracast logo uh, on the home page it instantly takes you to a website where you can download the logos and the wallpaper oh that's and cool the, yeah so instead of people yeah, right clicking and going like save image as or whatever it's like no 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 exactly. we got you here's like the real deal totally <laughs> so I, i'm swiping it uh, right click takes you directly there you <laughs> don't even awesome. have to click anything just right click you're there uh, so I'm building it mostly for fun as an SPA, but I'm recording the entire process. Uh, I don't know the link. Just go to Laracast.com and search for Laravel SPA. But yeah, we're using Laravel. We're going to use Vue and Vue Router. I use Tailwind completely. So I'll cover a lot of the the techniques of how you can remove some of that duplication if you want to, so like extracting uh, like a, a Vue component or extracting uh, a Tailwind component or, or things like that. So hopefully it'll be pretty useful. Awesome, man. That's it. Well, thanks so much for coming on and chatting about this stuff, dude. It's always a pleasure to have you uh, back on the show. And uh, I'm excited to keep up with the new developments on Laracast and keep up with this series because I'm I'm really interested in learning more about this whole SPA thing myself too. So that should be a great place to keep up with it. All right, man. Thank you. All right. Thanks. So there you have it, folks. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Jeffrey Way. If you're interested in checking out the show notes for this episode, they'll be at fullstackradio.com slash 111. Thanks to Rollbar and Cloudinary for sponsoring the podcast this week, and we'll see you next time.